0: Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and at the weekend I went to an Elvis festival, but we got there late. Elvis had left the building. Hey. sad times.
1: <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunlevy, and this week my nephew gave me one of the best pieces of advice I've ever had, um, not least because it came with the caveat, I'm not sure how much use you'll actually have for this in your life. <laughs> But apparently, here goes, guys, apparently if someone's firing at you from a helicopter, you should run towards them as it makes you harder to
0: hit. That's
2: valuable. Is that, I mean, I agree with him. I'm not sure how much use you will have for that. But is that, surely running away from them would be equally hard to hit? I think it's something to
1: do with the angle (laughs) that they're
2: going to have to shoot at you.
1: Oh, actually, it came with a full explanation. But basically, it's also predicated on the idea that they are likely moving towards you. Okay, so you will be moving towards You'll them, and their at brain some won't, point. It won't
2: compensate as quickly. I've got images of you in a like Willem Dafoe platoon style. <laughs> you Damn know.
0: you! You were wrong, child. Yeah, I think you're more Tropic Thunder.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to that, Hannah. To be
0: honest, <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord, and in fact,
2: there is no Jen. There is only football.
0: Oh dear. Oh, oh yeah, depending on how you feel about Jen slash football. I find it interesting that we've got more things
1: to say about running towards a helicopter with someone firing a gun than we can muster for
0: football. I've got to say, Jen, I don't know how much use I'm going to have in my life for your facts. (laughs) Don't care.
2: Don't care. Oh, my God. Germany, Mexico. I've already bored them about this today. I'll stop.
0: Later on, we chant to writer Rabia Hussain about her debut play, Spun, which takes a look at female friendships. And we also talk to her about representation and how it needs to be much, much better. Business psychologist
1: Paula Gardner talks to us about 14th century Italian top bird Beatrice
2: della Scala and women leaders in general. Mm mm-hmm. Journalist and TV writer Julia Rayside tells us all about her podcast Always There and why she's obsessed with 80s television series Howard's Way.
1: And I do Disney's Monsters,
0: Inc. Yay! But first, Chope, Sessions and West, an unholy trinity of Jeb Endery. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're proud to make ourselves footnotes to the greatest moments in history.
2: And it's a resounding slow clap from All at Standard Issue for misogynist, fuckwit, and all round human stain, Sir Christopher Chope. Sir Chris. Whose very name sounds like an insult? Don't you think Chope sounds like a you fucking Chope? Absolutely, <laughs> sounds like an insult. Staggering Chope, Staggering Chope. He was well. Anyway, that's Staggering Chope. He was happy to call Health and Safety gone mad on a private members' bill to ban upskirting last week, which was brought before Parliament and indeed had the government's backing. The campaign for the bill was started by Gina Martin, a victim of upskirting and introduced by Lib Dem MP Vera Hobhouse, but was objected to by CHOPE, Tory MP for Christchurch, who has incidentally also voted against equal marriage, equal pay transparency, the pardon of Alan Turing and is a member of hardline Brexit group Leave Means Leave, which sounds like something out of fucking South Park, it's so swivel-eyed. The bill would have seen the non-consensual photography of women's genitalia made a specific crime. And let's face it, it is quite a specific act. Punishable by up to two years in prison. Still, fuck women, right? Or, you know, photograph them, either or.
0: Apparently he's got previous on being the one who shouts bills down, because it only takes one backbencher. Well, that's kind of the point of this whole thing. Is that democracy, really? No, it's
1: just just one guy shouting. It's archaic, isn't it? I mean, if that was one guy in a pub, you'd just ignore him. (laughs) Absolutely. But in Parliament, somehow we've all got to go, oh, he doesn't want to talk about it.
0: Let's move on. Him and Philip Davis, I bet they are buddies. Yeah, probably.
1: Yeah. So, in things that have also made me seemingly mad this week, um, there's the immigration crisis in America, which has exploded since the last time we spoke, which was when Samantha B. called Ivanka Trump a cunt, the last bit of which has no real bearing on the rest of this story. I just enjoy saying it.
0: I enjoyed you saying it. Me too.
1: With things so bad that an estimated 2,000 children, including babies, are being held separately from their parents, even Melania Trump has called for an end to this policy. That's right. It's that bad that Melania Trump, said something Melania
0: can she speak
1: Mel- she said it through a spokesperson so that's <laughs> the best she can hope for there's absolutely no point me trying to tell you what's going on at the American border a because it's a really fast-moving story and b because if you've not read anything about it you really should there's, and there's nothing I can say here that will convince you that it's a humanitarian disaster as much as a photo of a toddler losing their shit as their mum gets taken into custody. What's not going to change, and by that I mean I hope nobody ever forgets it, is the response of the architect of the whole disaster, US Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. You know, the guy that looks like a malevolent goblin sentient mannequin, but creepier. In defending the policy, which he himself announced back in April, he said, and I quote, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Yep, to be clear, that's the US Attorney General suggesting God has implicitly endorsed this policy. Gilead much? Terrifying. More seriously, this is actually the same quote that has previously been used or was previously used to justify slavery. America, fuck's sake, pull yourself together. This is a disgrace. Um, Far be it from me, a recovering Catholic, to tell him, a performative Christian, how to do God. But if I'm wrong and he does exist, I'm pretty sure he thinks Jeff Sessions is a twat. (laughs) So like I said at the start, I don't know what's going to happen with this story. I hope it ends as soon as humanly possible. And I also hope, above hope, that one day someone passes a law that says if you're passing Jeff Sessions' house and the need takes you, it is your moral duty to shit on his doorstep. You know, just be there. Jeff, mate, sorry, I'd stop. But you know, the Apostle Paul, my hands are tied. (laughs) I've already started. I'm settling in. What's the Wi-Fi password?
0: Over in Argentina, the lower house has backed a bill legalising abortion in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. It was a close call with 129 yeas, 125 nays and one abstention. President Mauricio Macri is opposed to the bill but has said he wouldn't veto it if it is passed by both houses and the bill now heads to the Senate. It's tentatively good news and the women around the world fighting for abortion rights seem to be getting their voices heard more and more. However, the Gutmacher Institute, and apologies for my terrible pronunciation there, reported that a whopping 42% of women of reproductive age in the global population live in countries where abortion is highly restricted, which basically means it's entirely illegal or only allowed to save a woman's life. So yeah, nearly half the women in the world don't have bodily autonomy, including women in this country. The fight for abortion rights in Northern Ireland continues and in the past week Sinn Féin members have voted in favour of liberalising abortion law, stating the procedure should be available through a GP-led service for a, quote, limited gestational period. Again, good news, fingers firmly crossed. But, as it currently stands, it's still illegal. Women in Northern Ireland still have to travel for an abortion as do women in the Republic of Ireland and the Isle of Man, until legislation is put in place. So please support Alliance for Choice and chuck some cash at the excellent Abortion Support Network. And yeah, we will be keeping wanging on about this until women have rights over their bodies.
2: Mm. Owe someone some money and not sure how to get out of it. Yes, please. Yeah. (laughs) Not a problem, says Boris Becker. There's an easy solution. Just exploit one of the world's poorest countries and claim diplomatic immunity. Simple, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. The perpetually sunburned three-time Wimbledon winner took a novel approach to avoiding the pursuit of further assets by private bank Arbuthnot Latham. That is very tricky to say. A bank Becker allegedly owes money to, something which resulted in him filing for bankruptcy last year. Becker has since been appointed as the Central African Republic's sports-slash-humanitarian-slash-cultural affairs-attaché – is that how you say that word? Yeah. – in the EU – which, according to his legal team, means he cannot be subject to legal proceedings in the courts of any country for so long as he remains a recognised diplomat. The BBC pundit, who incidentally has employed the same tactic as a former adviser to all-round good egg Colonel Gaddafi, says he was immensely proud of his appointment, and we bet you are, Boris. But you still owe me that tenner, mate. Yeah.
1: Oh God, this, this week. This week has just made me so angry. So let's move on to the horrific murder in Melbourne of stand-up comedian Euricity Dixon, who was murdered on her way home from a gig on Wednesday night. 22 years old. There is a 19-year-old man in custody, which means that I'm going to have to be careful about what I say about it Mm -hmm. from a legal point of view. I mean, there has just been the most enormous outpouring of anger and grief in Australia about this. What I can't get, get over and what I've really struggled to try and write something about this is, you know... It's a tragedy when anybody is murdered at all, whatever age they are, whatever gender they are. But when a young woman is pursuing a career that involves her being out and about late at night and she gets murdered on the way home from that, it just what is wrong with people who hashtag not all men, quite frankly? We know dozens of women that walk home every night by themselves from gigs. That is the life. That is what stand-up comedy is. I did it. I did it for five years. And you put yourself in a really vulnerable situation. You are really exposed. You spend a lot of time, the only woman in your carriage with a load of pissed up guys on a train. You walk across a lot of unlit car parks. You walk home by yourself because it's just not practical to make someone come with you or to pay for a taxi door to door. You, couldn't, you wouldn't have a career. You wouldn't have any friends. You wouldn't have any money if that was how you had to deal with it. I was talking about this to Gronya Maguire and she was like, this is every comedian's worst nightmare that this is going to happen to you on the way home. I have to say my worst nightmare was actually that I'd be killed on the M6 because that, that's another thing you have to put up with. And what the point of this is... And what people in Australia who are turning around now and saying that women should not put themselves in that situation, and what you are saying is women can't do that job. You are actually closing careers to women if you are saying to them you cannot be out and about late on the streets. And be that a career in working in clubs, be that a career in as a comedian, be that make you a nurse. And it is fucking outrageous to sit and not all men because all it takes is one guy. All it takes is for one guy to behave like this and suddenly the idea of being a stand-up comedian becomes a lot more terrifying for women everywhere. You're actually restricting what people can do in their in their careers. That's what people don't understand about male violence and why it affects women in every single
2: aspect of their life. It just suits the agenda, doesn't it? It suits the rhetoric of basically women don't fucking do stuff. But, you know, like be subservient and sit at home and, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, really, if you know what
0: I mean. Are you trying to say just sit there and look pretty? That's what women are yes. told to do. All yes. right. Well, we are not coy about our love of self-titled fashion disruptor and all-round top broad Karen Franklin. And once again, she is making some noise about the ridiculous beauty standards set for women by, well, um, tossers. Kanye West is hey. currently aimed. Kanye West is currently in Franklin's firing line, and rightly so. As Franklin points out, the latest campaign for the rapper-turned-designers Yeezy brand quote, objectifies women and normalises surgery. But doesn't Yeezy, West's collaboration with Adidas, mainly make trainers, I hear you ask? Sure does, but that hasn't stopped the brand using not-safe-for-work photos of women in highly sexualized poses, starkers aside from Yeezy kicks and rocking the size and shape of surgically altered booty that would make a baboon blush. Full, unnaturally massive ass in the air... Because a new trainer is called Supermoon. Get it? Hey. Sup- Supermoon, when you get your bump. Anyway, very clever, Kanye. Have a lie down, pal. Now, I am a big believer in your body, your core. And if you want to look like you're packing two inflated whoopee cushions in your pants seat, you do you. But these shots are virtually porn. And it's imagery that you would never see on TV or on a billboard as an advert. And yet, because Wes can cause a social media swarm by opening his front door, they are everywhere. There's no avoiding them. And so I'm with Franklin on this one. The new Yeezy campaign should be treated like any other offensive ad and be pulled by the Advertising Standard Agency. Also, Adidas, be better for women. It's really awful. I've seen it. It's, it's
2: really not good at all.
0: Hannah, can you cheer okay, us you up hon- at all? Oh,
1: yeah, does anyone want some good news? Yes, yes please. please. Um, that rap battle didn't happen.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, I'm not sure if that makes me feel good or just a bit sad, but yeah. if, if, can you imagine if we have been able to watch it on YouTube?
1: Yeah. There was another bit of good news, which is Dr. Fern Riddell, she objected in a tweet to the fact that the uh, Globe and Mail in Canada had decided to drop the word doctor from uh, from the titles of anyone that wasn't actually either a medical doctor or um, a scientific doctor or a reverend, so a doctor of theology. And she made a tweet about it, which she said she she worked very hard for it. She feels like if she is a doctor, she should be called a doctor, which is a fair point to make. There was an enormous backlash towards her on Twitter of men going, oh, you think you're better than us, do you? You think you're, you're something else because you've got a doctorate and I haven't. So she started a campaign, hashtag immodest women, in which she encouraged women who had a doctorate and were not using their doctor in their title to start using it. And because they should be. Because they're doctors and they've earned it. And yay. Well done, that doctor. Is I, all love I have to that. Say on that. And on that note, well done, that doctor. To everybody's favourite doctor. Apologies to other doctors we know. but Dr her, Fox? No. <laughs> <even> Dr Susan <laughs> Calman, who has been given an honorary doctorate from Glasgow University. University. Hey, yay. She, always
0: wanted, I, she did. Know. She always
1: wanted to be the first female Doctor Who. She didn't make <laughs> Jodie that. Jodie Whittaker's pipped her to the post, but she's hot on her heels. But she is now a doctor of sorts. Well done. Well yeah, done, well that one. Good on her. Good
2: By the way, I love that idea. Oh, I think you're better than us because you're a doctor. Yes, I do, <laughs> yeah. actually. And I will not apologise for that, you fucking prick.
0: Yes, I do, person not using your own name yeah. on Twitter and with a picture off a TV as your profile pic or your avatar or whatever they're called, probably wanking in your mum's basement. I do think <laughs> I'm better than you. <laughs> now, wash your hands and shut the fuck up. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we take notes on how to be proper women from stuff we read on t-shirts. Debenhams really covered itself in
1: glory last week after questions were rightly raised about girls clothing departments stock with t-shirts bearing the words Groupie Academy. Because God damn it, sometimes you just want to advertise the fact that in a few years your daughter will be impressionable and easily groomed. All of which might be story enough in itself were it not for Debenhams or more specifically Karen from Debenhams oh, Karen. response to the original poster on Twitter. And I quote, Sorry, I can't see the point you are raising. The Cambridge Dictionary definition is a person who likes a particular singer or other famous person and follows them to try to meet them. I know really... That was from someone called Karen. I too could have sworn it was Paul from that quiz team that always beats you who starts every sentence. Well, actually, I think you'll find. (laughs) That's right. Karen invoked the Cambridge English Dictionary and all I can say is, what the fuck, Karen? I love Cambridge, but we lost the battle for the dictionaries. Give it
0: up. I think she was like, I'm bringing out the big guns. (laughs) Dictionary, no, I refers to.
1: Perhaps unsurprisingly, Debenhams didn't respond to my immoderately worded but moderately well-supported tweet, well done guys, but did include me in its reply, which was that the T-shirt was on sale in a concession. Blah, 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 white noise. Both tweets remain on its account, which tells you everything you need to know about the company's attitude throughout.
0: And both tweets are signed Karen, whether it's another Karen jumping on the Karen bandwagon there, or if it's the same Karen just doubling down. Possibly. I think
1: Karen votes Brexit. I'm just throwing that out there. What
0: a fucking stupid argument It's a concession? Our hands
2: are tied. Choose your concessions better. Exactly. Do better,
1: Debenhams. Don't try to worm out of responsibility with pedantry and passing the buck. Take women's concerns more seriously. And stop sexualising children. For
0: fuck's sake. Yeah, I mean, you can understand why someone would have to be told that. Mm. Oh wait, no, no, not at all. It should be pretty fucking obvious. I don't know, what's the dictionary definition of obvious, Mickey? Well, which dictionary? I've got all of them here. I'm going to go into my Grimsby pocket edition. (laughs) We're joined by Paula Gardner, business psychologist, leadership trainer and a big fan of kick-ass 14th century Italian broads. Hi, Paula. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me today. So yeah, about those Italian broads. You're going to tell us a bit about Beatrice della Scala
4: mm. and
0: what made her unusual and why we should all love her as much
4: as you do. Okay. Well, it actually wasn't a particularly good time for uh, Italian broads in the 13th and 14th century. What? <laughs> it was very much a period of male dominance. So there was this one in, family. In Italy? in Italy? Really? Yeah, yeah. The men ruled the roost. And particularly in Verona, there was a family called the della Scala family, which ruled for over a century. And during that time, there were loads of wars, lots of feuds, lots of poisonings, brother killed brother. They got, somebody got excommunicated from the Pope. So lots of unrest um, happening. And yet there was one figure, Beatrice, Beatrice de la Scala, who is the daughter of one of the rulers. And as a child bride, she was married off to a duke in Milan and was meant to sort of cement the the two towns. And basically, she really stands out as an example of good leadership. She was able to calm her Milanese husband, who, by all accounts, was a bit of an angry man. So she acted as the go-between between between Milan and and different heads of states. She spent her own money actually redeveloping the areas that the the men had had mauled and destroyed in in their feuds and their fighting. And uh, she wasn't a pushover either. There was a point when her brother's tried to wrestle her inheritance off her, and she raised an army and fought for it. She didn't get it in the end, but what they did was they paid her off with a good sum of money and a, and a pension, so she did she did fight for, for something.
0: She did voluntary redundancy for the <laughs> <of her> family. <laughs> she, did. she did do a lot of work with the poor. She was really into making poverty a bit of a thing of the past. Yeah,
4: yeah, and she had 17 kids herself. What?
0: So. Oh, God. Oh, my. I can barely sort out breakfast of a morning.
2: Over what kind of time frame are we talking? She died at the age of 53. Oh, well. 17 kids were What 17. you. Wow. My yeah. say, we... When
1: you were talking about it, it all sounded very, very Shakespearean, obviously. It's Verona, that time, Milan. Yeah. Uh, except that Shakespeare didn't really write great female characters, and she is a great female character.
4: Yeah. How did you find out about her? So I went to Verona quite a few years ago, and there's this lovely little church, and outside the church are some beautiful tombs. And on the sort of tours, they all stop at these tombs. they are three very gothic tombs that are meant to be the, you know, the best gothic art in, in Italy. I've actually been there. Have you? Yes. The the tour guide was telling us a little bit of a snippet of the story of the della Scala family, and I thought, oh, these are quite interesting. And you know, as you do when you're on holiday, I sort of like fantasised about. Oh, I'll come back to Italy and I'll do I'll do a an MA in, in medieval history and I can find out all about this family. And that didn't happen. I did a, a masters in business psychology in UEL in Stratford in London. Um, equally beautiful. Mm. Equally beautiful. Mm. <laughs> but the the della Scala's sort of st- um, stuck with me. And when I went back to Italy last October, I sort of did a little bit more searching around. And thought oh, how can I use this? I'm not going to do the the history masters, but how can I use this in, in what I do? So how do you yeah. use it
0: in what you do? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I take people out to Verona and we work on leadership and visibility, which is one of my big things being my background is PR, so I focus a lot on visibility. And we use the family as sort of a teaching tool and it makes it very experiential. So we actually go to the places that the family would have lived would have walked through we go to places where somebody was killed because Verona is so similar to how it used to be in some places you can actually imagine yourself there and you specialize in training female leaders yeah what made you want to do that that's a really good question because I never set out to do that it's just over time my clients have been have been women I haven't deliberately marketed towards them but women have been attracted to working with me.
0: Have you noticed patterns with working with all these women and making them leaders? Patterns of stuff that maybe women don't believe enough in themselves or like strengths and weaknesses that women sort of share?
4: There's a lot about visibility actually. A lot of... of, it's not always women. Some some men have this too. But a lot of women are brought up to feel that they, they shouldn't brag, they shouldn't um, talk about themselves, they should be humble, they should be quiet. Clients come to me and say, you know, I find it really difficult to speak up in meetings and I'm waiting for the right moment and yet that right moment doesn't come and by the time it has, the conversation's moved on. So that's very common. Um, and another one is women saying something in a meeting and people almost glossing over it and then somebody else, often a man, will say it ten minutes later. What a good
0: idea, Phil.
4: It's revolutionary. Excellent work, John. Let's table
0: it. (laughs) Stephanie, get some coffee. (laughs) Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. So it's sad to say that all these things are still going on, yeah. How do we counter that? Well, the first thing, the actual being conditioned to um, find visibility uncomfortable It's not easy, it's not like a quick, oh, let's sit down and do an exercise, which is why I like to take people away for a few days. And we do some stuff around, work around family of origin, sort of looking at what stories, you know, your parents told you, but also where they got their stories from about visibility and showing up and so on from their grandparents. It's quite, well, it's often very cathartic, but it's also really interesting because you realise that, you know, you're not just the product of your parents or your carers or whoever, you know, brought you up, but you're the product of of the generation beyond them and beyond them. And it's quite interesting to see patterns. And often when you recognise a pattern, that's sometimes enough to shift things and to get you thinking about, oh, how can I do this differently? Did you all get this? If I was noisy... Not
0: necessarily from my mum, but from older, like like a different generation, my grandparents, whatever. Little girls should be seen and not heard.
1: Oh, my grandma went the full whack. Children should be seen and not heard. Oh, she was, was
0: with
2: equality. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone ever said that to me. Oh, short gem. No. <laughs> Good.
1: Yes. Yeah. Although I did have a conversation with a friend of mine the other day <laughs> who told me she had been discussing with her son who had come home to complain there was a really bossy girl in his class that little girls tend to be called things like bossy, whereas little boys bossy a lot. tend to be called things like potential leader. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just there, this <laughs> idea. She's ever so bossy, this little girl in my class.
2: I yeah. explained this to my mum quite recently. She said to me, you always were quite bossy. And I said, mum, to quote Beyonce Knowles, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss, actually. <laughs> so thanks it's a, very it's much.
0: It your mum. It did, yeah. <laughs> wow.
2: Yeah, No. and then I explained to her that... Um, no one says that to boys because they are literally the boss. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah it's expected,
4: isn't it, mm. boys? Yeah. So Scarlet Thinking is the name of your company. Yeah. And when did you start that? That started just over two years ago. Because you probably just decided to turn your life around a bit, didn't you? Yeah.
0: Bit of an inspirational story yourself, Paula.
4: Thank you. Go on, tell it. So to say uh, a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, three years ago, I was in PR, PR and marketing. I'd been in PR and marketing since my 20s. And we forgive you. <laughs> Mostly. And I wasn't unhappy, but it, you know, it was feeling quite superficial. And I was thinking, oh, if I'm going to be doing this for the next you know X number of years. I'm not quite sure whether I'm going to be that happy. And I actually went on a date with a guy who was in his 50s. And he'd been a psychologist, and he was retraining to be a barrister. I was really impressed by that, because I just always am when people, you know, decide to change their lives in, in big, spectacular ways. And I did tell him about this this thing that I had as a teenager when I was particularly interested in psychology and personality quizzes and so on. And um, told him the story of how I'd always thought, slide door style, that there was another Paula out there who was a psychologist. I remember he looked at me over the table and said, "Well, why don't you do it? And all those things came up. I can't, I've got three kids and I'm a single mum and I've got to pay the mortgage and da-da-da-da to move the conversation on. But it stuck with me. So I went back home and just Googled my local university and thought, I'll just do the local one. That's all, I'm just going to see. And of course it had a course on psychology. And then I thought, oh, I'll just speak to a couple of... You know, lecturers, and, and see what they think. Spoke to the psych- head of psychology there, and he said, "Oh, actually, it's business psychology you might really like." So I spoke to the senior lecturer in business psychology, and, and thought, "Oh, this is for me. This is what I want to do." And after that, everything just fitted. I got an email saying that I could apply for a grant from the lovely EU to give to give me fifty percent of the oh, funding Do you remember oh, the EU guys? guys. Oh, oh, I miss the them. EU. Yeah, um, and it all just fitted in really well. That was it. My Life changed in I think was about three days. Paul, where can people find you? So my website is www.scarletthinking.com. And are you on the Twitter? I am at Scarlet Thinking, and also Instagram, which is the same. Awesome. Thank and you Twitter so much. Can
1: I just ask? Are we saying the word Scarlet there
0: as in Like the, the, the color? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like the colour Paula is clad in today. Yes, always wearing red. She's always on brand, babes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming in to
4: talk to us. Thank you.
0: Hello, we are joined by writer and playwright Rabia Hussain. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much for coming in. Rabia is here to chat about why she's sick of seeing Muslim women depicted as extremists and also about her debut play, Spun. And those two points are kind of interlinked, aren't they?
3: They are. That's kind of what the... Well, in a subtle way, that's what the play is about. Um, It's based in East London, where I grew up, so around Newham. And uh, it's about two friends who have grown up together and just as they're leaving university, they go off in kind of, for, for the first time, separate ways. So one stays in Newham to become a teacher and the other one goes off to work in a big kind of office in central London. It's basically looking at two girls who are just going through life as anyone else would do, you know, leave university, you kind of try to find a job, you try to maintain those friendships. But it's looking a little at this particular circumstances and because of their background being working class from East London, being um, of a certain background and religion, and just how the outside world can infect their friendship really and how it disintegrates over time because of the impact external influences have on them.
0: It's set around the 7-7 bombings in London, right?
3: That that particular period was interesting, if we think about London, for a couple of reasons. One, the Olympic bid was announced and London was going to host, and that was, of course, Newham. Um, the 7-7 bombings happened. Uh, the following year, there was the shootings in Forest Gate, and there was a march as well to kind of, you know, ask for an apology, uh, because, of course, the... Uh, The raids were were kind of not... Nothing came out of them. And so I kind of wanted to look at a period of London where the play would allow me to look at London in a different way so the impact certain things can have on east london compared to central london because london i find is so different it's so it's different just getting on the train from east london right into central london you really notice all those changes uh, in terms of the way people talk or dress and just you know uh, just the background of people as well so even though it's set around that time it's more looking at the effect of these events rather than the events themselves the events are not focused on as much it's more about what happens after these events
0: and It's about two women who are friends. Yes. And there's not actually that much written about female friendship, which I find quite baffling because it's such an interesting subject. But, Um, you know, unless a woman's relating to a man, it's very little gets said.
3: It's so true. And what I found is so when whenever we look at, you know, generally in culture, pop culture or, you know, any type of film or TV, I mean... Even the way we hear about female friendships, uh, you know, during our lifetime, we hear about them being catty or backbiting and jealousy. And actually, I don't know what I would do without the women in my life. You know, they are so strong, so so strong, and they're the first people I'll turn to if I ever need anything. And I know I can. Uh, rely on them uh, much more than any man in my life to be perfectly honest and so female mm-hmm. friendships are just beautiful really and I really wanted to show that I wanted to show how close these two girls are how much they rely on each other yes their friendship disintegrates but there's something quite poignant and painful about that and it's not because of a man or because of you know any relationships or it's particularly to do with out- the outside world They're very, it's a very kind of socio-political Play and it's looking at that. And um, uh, there were a couple of people who had said to me, Oh, how come you know they're a certain age, but they don't really talk about any you know, relationships and guys, and I was like, Yo, if, if you want to hear about that, there's loads of plays and loads of films that talk about S-
0: Seriously, that. Seriously, where can I find something that <laughs> deals with women being in love with someone? I don't understand. There's yeah. just nowhere there.
1: Well, there's nowhere, right? <laughs> the friendship thing's interesting because I have to say over the course of my life, actually, um, I had one major falling out with a friend I was really close to. We haven't seen each other for 10 years. I think it's unlikely we'll ever see each other again. And actually, now, with hindsight, that actually upsets and bothers me more than any bloke i've ever split up with i think there's a
0: particular sadness when Mm. friendship breaks down and we're never really taught how to deal with it whereas because there is so much written and spoken about romantic relationships even though it hurts Mm. you know that there's a way of dealing with it but when friendships break down and i think i do think, think that
2: is something that probably most women have experienced like a close friend who for whatever reason the friendship breaks down and yeah it, it's i remember having that when i was 18 something like that before i went off to university and yeah that was, was absolutely devastated it was awful
3: and life gets in the way yeah. sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be a particular reason i had a best friend when i was in uh, sixth form all the way through university and um once we finished university, we just kind of drifted apart. There was nothing happened, there was, you know, no hard feelings, but we just drifted apart. But there's always, there's still going to be a sadness to the fact that we're not as close as we were once upon a time. Female friendships for me are really interesting and, you know, I hate the way they're depicted because they are something, they're very unique. But I suppose that's because
2: almost everything is, uh, is... depicted from the point of view of a man yes. so it's obviously a lot more interesting to men <laughs> to uh, think about us all fawning over them all the time yeah rather that, than that's yeah.
1: exactly <laughs> or you get the female friendship stories that are like just so typically like you know like beaches that are so typically just <laughs> sentimental and over the top yeah. and it has to be about oh we're battling through this together rather than just the day-to-day shit that you put up with that I really you moan enjoy to your friends about. Yeah, yeah.
3: I really enjoy Broad City. I haven't seen the recent seasons, but it's the American program about uh, Abby and Ilana, two friends, and they. And for me, that's a great depiction of a female friendship, just because they are just really funny and cool, and they just love each other, and they just silly and they just sit around smoking weed all the time and it's great. Well that was my confusion
1: with girls because girls they didn't actually seem to like each other very much well,
3: at girls. Yeah but they were all I mean
2: that was the main problem with girls wasn't it they were just all absolutely vile characters so like, it's yeah.
3: just horrific.
0: And even though it was about women and there's some really lovely moments and very funny moments in it it still revolved around what men they were sleeping with a lot yeah. of the time.
3: Yeah and I, I, I wish we can move past that. Um, Do you mean in this conversation? Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> No, we should stick to talking about that in this conversation, <laughs> but generally.
0: So it sounds like Spun is absolutely smashing the Bechdel test. Is that how you say it? Bechdel? Bechdel. Bechtel? I'm confused about that. I thought it was. Bigdell. Yeah.
1: Let's say it every way, and then like yeah. we can claim, bit like when we do the Guardian quiz, give 30 answers, yeah. and then you're actually right.
0: That test about women smashing it, right?
3: Yes, that one, that particular one. Are, I there, think are there any they, men in it? There's, um, you know, fathers... Um, and some work colleagues but they're all kind of in the background there's no it's it is literally about these two friends.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yes. It also sounds like it's a love letter to London.
3: Yeah yeah I mean for me I, I I say this it's I feel like I'm London through and through Um, it's you know I grew up in London I I've seen different parts of London in different kind of ways. I've come from a really working class uh, background and grew up in East London where it's uh, in an area which is very predominantly South Asian working class um, and once I finished university I went and worked in central London um, of course completely different to mm-hmm. the environment I grew up in. It was when I was uh, in my final year of the summer before my final year of university when 7-7 happened and that really devastated me because I was working as an office junior in the summer uh, at, uh, near, Powell, near Trafalgar Square actually and uh, that really devastated me and just to see London um over the years now, where I uh, grew up for a skate its become unaffordable just because it's being gentrified uh, as well, and you know because of the Olympics and that legacy uh-huh. as well. And so, for me, I mean, I I love London, I absolutely love it, but I do recognise the disparities and uh, it's it's a world within it within its own, and I love it, but the, it does seem quite unfair <laughs> as well. Like, just yeah, it's. Sounds
0: like another friendship sort of falling apart or shifting a bit. Yeah,
3: exactly. I mean, I just look at my parents or my grandparents when they moved to this country, Forest Gate, East Ham, those areas were the only affordable places. And that's where, you know, all the immigrants went because, you know, the factories were there. Um, and now as their children, we can't afford to live there. Which
2: is <laughs> we, a pretty common story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Among people who, yeah. growing up in London, who are sort of the same... Well, a lot of big is. cities actually mm-hmm. now,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. to be honest. I mean, yeah. where I
1: live. Almost everybody I know who's from Cambridge now lives in a village outside Cambridge yeah. because you can't afford to live in Cambridge anymore.
0: Halifax is still doing fine, guys. <laughs>
4: <laughs> just come to
0: come But I'm sure Ma- Manchester Leeds, Leeds are the Leeds same. Has really yeah. done exactly that. And so the, I think the, the outskirts just get broader and broader and broader. Halifax is still doing fine,
3: guys. Uh. <laughs> Even when I was younger, just Hackneyed, Alston. Yeah. Um, even even in, around Shoreditch, Brick Lane, I just remember walking down Brick Lane and, you know, it was so different to what it is now. And I think just London's changing a lot. Mm. Um, and it, it kind of makes me a little sad sometimes just because we're... Yeah, it's just... it, It's changing in a way which I think sometimes is pushing certain communities out. Yeah. And so, yeah, that seems a little, you know, unfair. But the other thing about London also, when you... It's the kind of city where it's it's really linked to your identity of who you are and the play is also about microaggressions particularly in the workplace and especially when you know certain events happen so there's this one particular question which i think anyone from a minority background will understand is where are you really from and you know for me that's i'm from london i, I am Londoner, no but where are, you, where are you where are you really, you really from? from yeah, yeah. <laughs> well where are you really from <laughs> so there's that other element of uh looking at where you're from from the perspective of the city that you want or your background and yeah it's really difficult to tell people that no that I'm just from London this is this is me I've you know spent most of my life here Um, actually it's quite funny I remember me and my cousin a few years ago were going to do we were doing a trip around uh, Europe uh, on the rail and uh, just as we got to King's Cross station we were about to embark on our journey, and we were outside with our big kind of backpacks. And someone came out of King's Cross station and said, Welcome to London. <laughs> <And> it's <laughs> just really funny because, yeah, we're just we we are from London, you know, we're uh, just about to leave for a trip, but yeah, there's that question of uh, because we look a certain way and because we have those backpacks, there's an assumption that we're not from London, so there's that idea, you know, again, just where are you really from? Do you so, find
1: that you find that? People, white people, predominantly, I suppose, treat you as their go-to person for every time something's in the news. You're the person yes. they ask the questions yeah. of. Yeah. Well,
0: mate,
3: I've just got to rule off like six different questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the time, especially when I was working, uh, you know, I was quite new out of university, not very confident in a completely different environment to what I'm used to. And I don't think people always realise just how much those questions can affect you. you. You feel like you owe an explanation and you feel responsible in a certain way for things that have nothing to do with you and so people ask those questions and you just kind of answer them in whatever way you can and um, you know you say that you don't agree with certain things or whatever and then you're looked at and you're really different you know that that comment is you know given a lot and and I and actually, no, I'm not very different. Everyone around me, you know, thinks the same. But you know, because of the type of focus we have, um, you know, whether it's media, or whether it's TV or film or uh, theatre, I think there's a particular image in people's mind. And then, w- when something happens, you're just asked all these questions, and it it can really break you down. Actually, and I don't think people realise just how. Uh, damaging microaggressions can be. It really affects your confidence, it affects your sense of self and your identity. And so, again, the play is looking at that rather than looking at the events that happen, just, you know, particularly the events that happen, or look at how just feelings. It's about how people outside react to us and then what that means for us and what that, what effect that has on us.
2: And have you seen over a period of time that those microaggressions
3: have become different or more intense i think what's good is that we've got a label for it now i mean i didn't know what microaggressions were you know um, 10 years ago i didn't uh you know these questions were asked but for me it was it just became really normal whereas now there's a label to it and i think there's still a lot of resistance i think in recognizing that Microaggressions are a form of racism, but people from you know minority communities um are calling people out a little bit more. I think it's not always easy to do, but I think what I found particularly during aud- auditions for the play is a lot of people recognize pretty much everyone recognized those microaggressions, and I think what 's changed from my perspective is just the fact that we 're highlighting them more we're actually giving them a name so i don 't know if they've changed in any kind of particular way but I think I'm I'm recognising them more as microaggression and the effect that they have, how damaging they can be. Whereas, you know, ten years ago I had no idea. Just, yeah. I think
1: as well, I mean, to be honest, it's it's not just isolated communities that get it. I think it happens across if you if you say to people, for example, for twenty odd years of my life, people constantly ask me when I was going to get a boyfriend or when I was going to get married or was I going to have kids, which I consider to be exactly the same, a microaggression. I just, I don't want it printed on a T-shirt. I don't have to constantly explain myself to people. I don't want children. Oh, you think I'm going to change my mind? Oh, okay. Now I'm 42. I'll ring you up. No, I'm not. I'm 44. I'll ring you up and tell you to like, ju- like that. I was correct. See, you so you can't
0: be trusted, Hannah. I think if you get
1: people to recognise what what, what, what the things that bother them in their life that are constantly brought up to them, be it about oh you're a tall person or you're a whatever that that then you can say now look at how you speak to other people mm-hmm. and and it's a, and it's an indication because it happens, I mean it happens more predominantly I would say to people of colour than it does, but it happens a lot to women mm-hmm. as yeah. well.
3: And then if you're a woman of colour, oh yeah, oh, well d- oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Con- double Vingo, bubble, congo. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs>
0: that leads me quite neatly onto depictions of Muslim women as either extremists or. or struggling because they're losing their faith you wrote something for i think it was huffpo yeah yeah about that is is that something that's always fascinated you
3: it has i think i mean to me those are you know both different ends of the spectrum and actually a lot of people sit in the middle where they may question a little bit or they may become a little closer to their identities but there there's there's a whole load of women in the middle there i mean Um, I don't know anyone who's become like an extremist and gone off to Syria or whatever. But, you know, those are the those are things we kind of keep on seeing. And of course, there's women who will, you know, maybe lose their faith for whatever reason. And, you know, I'm not saying those are those are stories to tell. They're important. You know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't tell those Why? But if we're going to really talk about representation, we have to look at, all those different stories in the middle, and there's a lot of them. And so, in t- in terms of these characters, they both deal with the external events in different kind of way. One kind of maybe ha- starts to question her faith a little more. The other one kind of moves towards her idea, you know, her background a little more. But neither actually really let go of anything or you know embrace something to any kind of extreme. I mean, I just look at girls that wear hijab, and you know, there's always this idea that they're oppressed or they are so strong I mean they've have you seen the way they dress they're so fashionable more than I can ever be and so they've taken on that identity and made it their own and you know it's not stopping them from doing anything so it's that idea that we can actually take certain aspects of our identity and just mold them to fit what is right for us um rather than going on to you know complete extremes of you know letting go of religion or embracing an extreme version of it just I Again, all stories are valid. I'm just really tired of seeing those and hearing those. Well, it's difficult uh,
1: at the moment because that's how the entire world is presented to you at the minute, isn't it? You're either this or you're this. We're not really particularly shades of grey at the minute as a, a, well, just as in the entire world. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. When uh, Miss L came in to speak to us, um, who she is an actress, she said almost everything. She's of Middle Eastern mm-hmm. descent. She said almost everything she got called in for was terrorist or yeah. wife yeah. of terrorist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I are mixing not, it up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> because you know the vets and the doc or whatever or the other jobs, she just doesn't. Yeah, that's doesn't like it. cast a white person for that. Yeah, it's I mean, It, it was uh,
3: one thing I've noticed is that whenever there is a play about, say, South Asian women. Um, sometimes you get Middle Eastern women playing the parts or, um, you know, uh, people who maybe look a little South Asian, but they're not. And I think what tends to happen is people lump them together into kind yeah. of one, uh, you know, you're a person of colour, therefore, you know, all these roles, you know, sister, wife, <laughs> mother of a terrorist are open to you. I really wanted to make sure I, I had South Asian actresses for this play rather than, you know, Middle Eastern or, yeah. you know, someone that looks South Asian. I'm really, really happy to have Humira and Asiya. Asiya is actually British Pakistani. Humira is Indian, Muslim, Gujarati. Um, so they're both South Asian. They're both, you know, from the culture. And it's really, really nice to sit in rehearsals with them and see them relate so much to certain moments in the play. I, I'm hoping that a play like this will hopefully be able to show that we ha- we should have roles that vary for, you know, women of colour. They're not. All, they shouldn't always be, you know, related to a terrorist. I mean, that's a strong point. Yeah. But also, <laughs> that
0: women are allowed to be friends and not just exactly. chat about
3: blokes. Exactly. Oh, I don't think they talk about any blokes in my play well. Yes.
0: Yes.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I deliberately kept it like that
0: thank you so much for coming in so it's fun on at
3: London's Arcola Theatre from June the 27th to July the 28th it is on at the Arcola yes so it's a lovely space it's studio Two, and Arcola have been so supportive Um, and it's my debut play and I'm very nervous but excited and I hope everyone will come to see it
2: we're joined by journalist Julia Rayside, who's come to talk to us about her very excellent podcast, Always There. Julia, welcome. Thanks for having me. I have to say, first up, because you're going to tell us what your podcast is about. I am. Oh, am I? I
1: almost immediately want to start singing, Always There. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And I hadn't thought about that for like 20-something years. Yeah,
5: Yeah, this is the magic of the theme tune, but carry on, carry on.
2: Well, I... When I first heard about your podcast, I, there was a case of mistaken identity. I thought it was about Howard's End. Yeah,
5: I get that a lot. And I was like, <laughs> that is pretty niche. Wow, she's so
0: highbrow. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> niche. I thought it was niche. about the porn film Howard's End Away, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm making, so if I'm going to start a well, Kickstarter. Yeah, no, no, I'm sure someone's going to do it somewhere.
5: But it's 80s not. 80s-themed porn, nice. It's, no. it's
0: not. It's
2: about, tell us what it's about.
5: It's about the 1980s seafaring soap opera. Howard's Way. Howard's Way. Get it right. Yeah, and it's basically... Um, everyone's just looking at me like, shall we just go?" Um, what was the intonation <laughs> thing? What was the oh, emphasis yeah. oh, about? It just, well, I don't know. It just it just came out that way. But it's like um,
0: Like I used to work with someone who used to refer to like his indigestion tablets as <laughs> Renee's <laughs> like from
5: LOL. Rene. Yeah. I think
0: I'd probably get on with him. And also, um, it's like <laughs> uh, we watched it on Blu-ray. His
5: <laughs> emphasis was fucked. No, no, that I weird. know him. <laughs> Do
1: you? Yeah, he's a bit miserable sometimes. But <laughs>
5: Aww. anyway, no. The, So the Howard's Way thing is, I know it's a bit baffling. It's probably a midlife crisis, and I think it's quite a good safe one. It's not going to hurt anyone. I'm not going to buy a fast car or have an affair. I'm just going to watch Howard's Way. But basically, about two years ago, one of my friends who shares my interest in old TV said, "Um, did you know someone's put all of Howard's Way on YouTube? I was like, what, all of it? (laughs) And he said, yeah, yeah, me and the wife are just going through it from the start again. So obviously, I dipped my toe back in. Then I watched all of it. Then I obviously bought the box set because I'm not a criminal, um, <laughs> and just became gradually re-immersed in this weird world of shoulder pads and yachts and money and aspiration and Ken Masters yes. and regattas <laughs> and regattas. Oh, shitloads of regattas! The yeah, flying yeah. fish. That's the boat. Yes, well done. <laughs> it's in the opening titles. The flight. Service. it's about the Howard family. The soap opera, and uh, in the opening titles, I think the reason why I first liked the show was the opening titles. There the, is the only so glamorous soap opera set near the Isle of Wight, <laughs> <laughs> and um, because I used to go to like down there a lot, my grandparents lived there and stuff when I was a kid. It, you could see the Isle of Wight in the theme in the opening titles, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is really exciting! It's the Isle of Wight on TV." So I was hooked from the off. And uh, and my dad used to be a sailing instructor and stuff, so it kind of was the only thing our family could all agree on watching together on a Sunday night. So yeah, hence, can you sail? Never been, on a boat. No, I've been on a boat. I've never sailed. Oh, I've I never used sailed. to be able to.
4: Yeah,
5: <gasps> really. Yeah, I always find it exciting when I meet people who can sail.
2: I mean, I, I think like I potentially struck No, I could. I I could make the sail turn around if I had <laughs> so to. So technical. <laughs> yeah, like you would sort of. It's, there's a thing, a bow.
5: What's a spinnaker? Which is the fore and which is the aft? Like, can you answer these technical questions? No,
2: but like, if
0: pushed, <laughs> like if it came to it. I could sail a boat. Okay, well then I, I want to be with
5: you if there's a flood because
0: I can't sail a boat. I think that's like <laughs> me saying if it came to it, I reckon I could fly a plane. No, <laughs> look, I, I have sailed a boat okay.
2: several times.
0: My mum took us on a sailing holiday because her friend had a boat and it meant we could go for free, basically. Uh, when I was about 13, 14, my mum can't swim and was incredibly <gasps> seasick the whole way around. I don't think it was her favourite holiday. Still a free holiday, though.
1: <laughs> free. My dad made a, made us. A boat. Now, he's a carpenter, but don't get excited about what it looked like because it was the worst thing ever. And it was, like, basically these two... I think what happens is you got these two, like, massive floats, you know, like you used to have one swimming. Yeah. And he thought, what can I do with them? So he kind of sort of weirdly nailed it together with some sea <laughs> <on my> bicycle <laughs> and just, like, took it, drove it with the, on the roof of the car to Norfolk and just basically pushed it out to sea. And you can see photos of my sister and I, like, each having a go on this. And what you Slowly can't tell is, because like, we're so far away, is that we're like crying.
3: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
1: just Sit on the boat. Um, when yeah. you say
5: boat, I mean, did it have a mast? Was it just like a big? Was it a raft?
1: It was basically a massive raft. It's okay. like something that people build and cast away. Oh, um, I know. Yeah, yeah. Or
5: yeah, yeah. we'll get and now get out <laughs> yeah, of that. Yeah. He like did, here are some oil drums. Get to get to the island. That he did also.
1: Thing. I mean, we live in. I think Newport Pagnell is about five miles from the place that's furthest from the sea in the whole of the UK. (laughs) So it was kind of pointless. He also did... You remember those Fisher-Price camping? Like Mm -hmm. camper things that had the boat that came off the roof? Yeah. Right, and was a roof. Well, he also bought a thing like that once at an auction, and it had a massive hole in it, and was going to fix it and never did and um, we just used to sit in it and pretend to like be on a boat when we were little it was basically just a massive toy See, it's a fun garden. game
0: that the, yeah. that the whole family Do can you play Do think your dad was trying to get rid of you? <laughs> Always <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Always Absolutely well, so yeah,
2: I, I grew up on the coast didn't I? Papa had got a boat Oh, of course! Not a posh things, just what people on the coast do. They're that's boats. what they do to, yeah. for fun, because you know, you don't live near the water and then don't have a boat, there's oh, no yeah, point. Fuck all else to do other than sit on a bench and drink cider. So you know, yeah. and
5: then when you're Why old enough, not? a heroin habit. Yeah,
2: absolutely. yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <fun. Does> have got <laughs> have ambition. Oh yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah yeah. Funny enough, we had a chat about this earlier. Yeah, but that's I what plans. I
5: love. That's what I love about Howards Way because it was fil- obviously it's filmed on location, and of course, yes, I've been to the locations repeatedly since coming back to being obsessed with Howards Way, and the pub that it's set in, that, that some of the scenes in still there it's called the jolly sailor you can go it's brilliant um so the jolly uh, sailor in portsmouth uh no it's actually near southampton on the river hamble Estuary. Uh, okay. yes a place called Bursledon, if you're interested but it's, it's beautiful stop it there'll be a rush no i know <laughs> seriously i'm slightly worried about what i've unleashed on, uh, on the small community down there but um the interior scenes because i grew up in the midlands the interior scenes were all filmed in pebble mill which I loved. So they were leaving like a beautiful sunny day at the boatyard, um, and then going into an office which was in Birmingham. I just thought that was pretty sweet.
2: I never watched Howards Way because I think I was two when it started. Yes, I think you were probably too young. But uh, I've listened to your podcast. Thank and you. It's very funny. <laughs> it's very funny, and I now feel inspired to Yay! to watch it because the way you describe Don't it. Get <laughs> it's hilarious. Shut up. It's also, brilliant. when I discovered that um it was about this funny soap opera, I was a bit like, shit, I could make one about El Dorado. Oh but you could? Like someone on your podcast <laughs> says exactly the same thing. And I was like, shit, they've already Oh, Marcus. Someone what else has got it. it. Oh, Marcus. Mar- I, I have a. I have a <laughs> colleague. P- I have a colleague somewhere where I occasionally freelance called Marcus, and I refer to him as Marcus Obviously. every time.
0: He loves it. He it, love it?
2: yeah. <laughs> Other people have started doing it now. Oh, he's like, <laughs> Jen Marcus. is my
0: favourite. Yeah. <laughs> well,
5: what I want to unleash now is just like a, a whole load of podcasts where people just go back and immerse themselves in whatever their favourite show was when they were, I don't know, 10. Because it's actually quite therapeutic. I recommend
1: it highly. Well, can I ask I mean I can remember Howsway I can remember watching it um, I could just remember them talking about cows a lot but not the good cows oh as in cows, cows with W-E-S yeah. on the end yeah okay um, and the regatta and, yeah. and all of that a lot I don't think it really like I say I grew up probably as far from the sea as it's possible mm-hmm. to in this country so it, it didn't speak to me on any sort of level that said there wasn't there was only like possibly even three channels at that point so you just yeah. sat down and watched what was on TV just four I on think a, only on just yeah, Sunday yeah. night but it was i can remember it being seemingly ridiculously posh although oh, yes. yeah of it's
5: upper middle class like <laughs> yeah. they've all got massive fucking houses in i don't know on the south coast fleets of cars they're wealthy people Is but then very- i went to
1: live down there mm-hmm. was it went to university in portsmouth oh. and that sort of the solent neck of the woods and it's apologies to people in portsmouth but <laughs> yeah. in the in the early 90s wasn't anything like that. No, at all. no,
5: you have to go out to the kind of the rich rural heartlands and you know, where the yachty set gather, that's yeah. where it was it set. Feels a bit Jilly Cooper. Actually it is a bit. And the um to so the guy who produced it's called Gerard Glaister. And um and he did a show before it called The Brothers, which is like another fairly sort of middle class we don't get middle class soaps anymore. That's the thing I kind of keep finding when I'm watching T V now. There's 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 things about really, really rich people and just sort of like people who live in Corrie. But there's nothing about that kind of middle... There's not a lot, unless you want to go for hospital drama or police drama. There isn't a lot about, I don't know, me. I mean, they're, they're richer than me. I was definitely like lower middle class, but I was definitely middle class and I didn't see myself on TV at all. So Gerard Glaster, the guy who produced it, he went on to do Trainer after Howard's Way was cancelled, which was basically about riding and horses and all that stuff. So, yeah, but more middle class pursuits. But, yes, it is a bit... But with yachts instead of studs. So what happens in it? Mm. Hardly anything, which is, I think, why I like it so much. <laughs> um, so the the thing the thing that I'm sick of now. I, I review a lot of drama, and I'm kind of I'm am just done with police tape, posed dead sex workers. Just stop! I can't take any more. No more crime. I just want ordinary tales of ordinary folk. And going back to TV in this this is the mid 80s. We're talking about 85. There were shows like that and this was... okay. the setting was glamorous or they tried to make it glamorous. It was always windy and grey. They were trying to make it look like, you know, Sandra Pay, but it never did. But it was was about people who had a bit of money and so their problems weren't... I don't know. They they weren't at either end of the scale. They were just sort of uh, having emotional problems. Their marriages were going wrong. Uh, business deals were falling through. But it was kind of much lower stakes in the scheme of things. I don't to know. Drama now. Not wanting to make fiberglass boats. That's a bit. Of a- <laughs> it's yeah. It's the eternal battle between yeah. wood and fiberglass. Who will win? <laughs> fiberglass, it turns out. But there yeah. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. <on the> spoiler <laughs> it. How yeah. long did it run for? It ran for um, six series. So it was like eighty-five to ninety. And it really typifies, you know, the 80s, Thatcher's Britain. And I think it was something literally like, I have to check this fact, but about three days after it finished, Thatcher resigned. They should was have only p- done one series. <laughs> 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 I know, it would have been good, wouldn't it? But uh, no, no, luckily for me, they did six. And the, the sixth series is patchy. It's very patchy, actually. Um, but the star of the show was this actor called Maurice Colburn, and um and he was all over tv sort of in the 70s and 80s and the 60s actually and then um five series in so he plays the character tom howard the title character five series in he was this young vigorous rather beautiful man in his late 40s and he just was on holiday one day and he dropped dead had a heart attack and died so they 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 limped on for one more series but really it was just like it was a non-starter after that
2: on the podcast when you talk about it you obviously find aspects of it very amusing and it does sound like very entertaining. but you are also clearly you actually rate it for why
5: (laughs) for why don't say it like you don't know no no, I I haven't seen it yeah well I think when I went back to it when my friend said oh you know it's on YouTube it's sort of in it's in like 10 minute chunks on YouTube and I think from the first episode I was really surprised because I think in my head I sort of had a it was a very sort of vague you know this is 30 years ago or whatever a very vague idea of it being a bit cheesy massively dated um, not very well written hammy acting you know all that stuff it was none of those things it was uh, the writing the the first series was um, mostly not all but mostly written by um, a writer called Jill Hyam and she the thing she wrote before Howard's Way was Tenko which Ooh. is now
1: i could talk about tenko amazing. for years yeah uh, right a quality
5: piece of television you don't get anyone going oh tenko that was a bit cheesy. it's a bit dated now uh, well it's brilliant y- there are Too bits of bloody it.
0: women in it there are oh bits. god
1: yes <laughs> yeah there are bits of tenko where you have like you know you look at it and you think some of that acting particularly the child acting it's
5: a different style is
1: it's quite painful to watch yeah. um i but then again you look at i I mean, there's only so many kin and Shipkas or Maisie Williams it's in the world, life. isn't there? You can't you you can't have one in every show. But what's really interesting about I think with Tenko is what they were talking about is stuff that called the midwife now gets praised for talking about in an almost like quite like revolutionary way. Oh yeah, um, yeah. not just like women's bodies because that's basically what it's about. Yeah. But also, like, the um, it's about, both of them are essentially about what happens when middle class and working class people have to live together and work together. About 90% of, of the early stuff is actually about, like, a culture clash between yeah. A, people who believe in God and don't believe in God, yeah, yeah, yeah. and B, people who are middle class and people who are working class who are put in this terrible situation yeah, yeah, together. Yeah and um,
5: whereas I mean Howard's Way doesn't really mix the classes that much you do see it's really funny so it's set in um, Bursledon, which actually in the show is called Tarrant they've just made up this place called Tarrant was it after Chris Tarrant? No, I don't think it was. But anyway, so there, that's yeah. about, on the map, it's about five miles from Southampton. But when one of the characters um, gets pregnant and runs away from home, she runs away to Southampton. It's like a gritty, seamy city full of like <laughs> ethnic diversity and poverty. And it's like, it's five miles that way. <laughs> but um, but yes, yeah, so you, you get glimpses of it, but that's not what, really what Howard's Way is for. It's yeah. aspirational, it's the 80s. And they wanted to depict people who, who were trying to aspire to those values some of them weren't but most of them were so it was kind of like it was, it's a real time capsule and the writing's good um, the acting's brilliant some of it does look a bit dated just because it's people doing 80s acting you know a lot of them are from theatre one of the actors in Howard's Way is this amazing actress called Dulcie Grey who was like really big in uh, sort of 1940s cinema and theatre in this country and, and, and the decades after that? And she talks in such a clipped, incredibly posh yeah. way and says, What the devil and what the billio all the time. And she's just, it's almost you can't hear her, she's so posh. But it's delightful <laughs> to watch her. And then you set that against, you know, the kind of, I suppose. The thing is, I'm watching it now, and they're kind of my age—the the grown-ups in Howard's Way—who've all paid off their mortgages and have their lives together. They're like in their early forties. Absolutely <laughs> terrifying. There no, it is. Really upsetting. Um, but then, but even yes, the the, the 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 sort of style of acting has dated, but it's much more naturalistic than I thought it was going to be. And I yeah, I think I just once I saw one episode, and thought, bloody hell, you know, I've I've sort of studied and watched you know TV writing for years now, and I just think it's actually a really good example and not what I thought it was at all and then I just got completely sucked into the story because it is fairly soapy um, and just yeah I just couldn't stop I've gobbled the whole lot except the last episode which I still can't better watch because I don't want it to be over <laughs> so you have guests on yeah I have where are you guest? finding
1: your other house? I know right fans. you
5: think what well that's, this is the thing so the guests is there are a group
4: it's the <laughs> yeah. yeah.
5: It's called my podcast. Yeah. Come and find us on Twitter. But um, no, so the guest thing is is was interesting because I think it just you know I, obviously then I started talking a lot about Howard's Way in the pub and things, and um, and friends were just like um, oh I remember that or I don't know what you're talking about tell me about it, and so the podcast guests are a mixture of people who are like I can't wait to go back to the 80s and talk about this again, and um, the guy, there's a guy who's on uh, recently uh, he's a children's author called Andy Stanton he writes these brilliant books called Mister Gum. And um, and he's completely insane and mad and had never seen Howard's Way, but insisted that he'd love to do the podcast and just spent the whole, you know, two hours going. So who's that? And what's this? And actually, it was one of the most fun ones to do. Do you so watch then I an got episode to... with them? Yes. Yeah, so we're doing it like it's The Wire. <laughs> so most of it's on YouTube. Obviously, I've got discs and things. So, yeah, I just I get my guests to watch an hour and then we forensically pull it to pieces. Are you going to get any of the actors or anything in? Well, this is it. Apart mm from the dead ones. They've just, I know, it's it's actually really hard now. But um, no, so the the most exciting thing to happen when I started this podcast, I'm still like, you can see the smile spreading all over my face. Um, So the lead actress in it is called Jan Harvey and she plays Mrs. Howard, Jan Howard. She plays someone called Jan as well. And she's married to Tom and uh, is the most glamorous, aspirational character. She has this huge hair and incredible fashions and they spent most of the budget on her clothes. I mean, they look ridiculous now, but they were the most designery clothes. Anyway, it turns out she's still going strong and is on Twitter and she's still married to the actor she met while filming... And then their characters have an affair, and then they got together, and they're still married all these years later. And so that she occasionally posts pictures of him looking all dapper in a new suit or something. And when the podcast went out, she, uh, yeah, she came, she found it. She must have a hashtag or something. Or there is there is there is a core of very keen Howard's Way fans on Twitter who obviously can find you very quickly if you if you use a hashtag. And, uh, so or they, some they, sort of sailing signal,
1: I Well, imagine. clearly,
5: yes. We put up signs, just a series of flags. There really yeah. is
1: someone for
2: everyone.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, like I was so surprised. I didn't know they were there. And I think one of them must have tipped her off. And she came and found me and just said, love the podcast, great. So I'm playing it cool. But um, I yeah, I, I'm thinking it'd be really nice to go and do like a special interview with the two of them. That'd be amazing. Just, like, come on, come on. So she's been in touch a couple of times, but I don't want to scare her. <laughs> but she she likes what she's heard so far, so yeah.
0: Where do we find... Mm-hmm. Howard's Way, the podcast. Always oh, there, the Howard's Way
5: podcast. It's, at, it's on Acast and it is um, available in all the usual places.
2: Julia, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off the Blocks, that time of the week where, like Mexico to the patriarchy's Germany, we humble our opponents with a cheeky dummy and some top sporting bants, as it were, you know, because I don't really say bants. Anyway, that's right, the World Cup is in full swing and I must say it's been lovely to see both the BBC and ITV put some women on their punditry teams. ITV has the excellent Jackie Oatley and Woman of the Year Ennia Aluko who's going to Juventus, by the way, in case you remember me harping on about that a couple of weeks ago about how she was leaving Chelsea. Over on the Beeb, we've got Gabby Logan and Alex Scott representing. Of course, there's always someone ready to call, I'm all for equality, but women need to keep out of football. I'm sorry for the Northern accent. It just felt like the right thing to do. I mean, you fundamentally misunderstood the concept of equality there, but whatever. Details. In fact, even... Was he a former footballer? I'm not sure. Patrice Evra, I think he's retired, yes. So we'll call him a former footballer because I think he's retired. Patrice Evra, anyway. He was getting in on the act as well, actually applauding Aluko when she demonstrated some football knowledge, which is weird, right, for a footballer to have footballing knowledge. Anyway, she certainly demonstrated more than I have seen Patrice Evra demonstrate thus far. But anyway, and uh, don't get me started on the commentator's they're not just beach boys from the copacabana fucking L I T V you want to fix that up don't you the england campaign starts tonight at the time of recording it's monday and by the time you hear my musings you'll no doubt be suitably crushed by what's gone on but over to women's for a bit who are in the midst of qualifying for their own world cup shut up women have a world cup yeah they do. Earlier in the month, England, Scotland and Wales all celebrated victories, though Northern Ireland had less to get the Vuvuzelas out for after a 5-0 hammering by Netherlands. Last week, Wales and Scotland were victorious once more, and Wales now looking much closer to qualifying as they take second place in their group just behind England. In the cricket, England took a series win over South Africa last weekend. Particularly exciting was Tammy Beaumont, who made her second century of the week, and not for the first time either. Beaumont also hit back-to-back centuries during a home series against Pakistan two years ago, so not too shabby for her. And they will no doubt be looking forward to the Women's Kia Super League getting underway next month. Over to tennis, and I'm delighted that Simona Halep finally won her first Grand Slam at the French Open a couple of weeks ago. We've not talked about it because, you know, we had other stuff to talk about. So tip of the hat to her right now it's been a long time coming and I'm a very big fan so excellent news Less happy to report of course that Joe Conter missed out on the Nature Valley Open in Nottingham losing to Australian Ashley Barty in the final and Conter also had a bit of a Benny was the umpire during that match something that I feel I've seen happen with her quite recently actually possibly in the French Open Conter, of course, had a meteoric rise in the rankings a few years ago, and much of that success was credited to her working with a sports psychologist who helped her harness her inner chimp, as we call it, or if you prefer, her emotions, basically, on court. And I don't mean she was crying over baby sloths in onesies or panic-checking the timestamp on her boyfriend's WhatsApp. Rather, that the frustrations on court were making her game completely unravel. And let's hope we're not seeing any of that creeping back in and that she's going to be back on top form for Wimbledon because we do absolutely love her, obviously. And she's pretty fucking good when she's got it together. That's all for me this week. I won't be back next week with more sport because it's Gigcast week. But I will be watching as much football as is humanly possible. So if you fancy chatting to me about any of that, you can do so over on Twitter where I can be found smirking in my Italian 90 England shirt at InspiroGent.
0: Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I did 2001.
1: Yeah, 2001. Film Monsters Inc. Yay! Which I had actually seen before, but I couldn't remember a solitary thing
2: about it.
0: Have you guys seen it? Watched it? (laughs) Rewatched it? Yes, yes, and all of the yes.
2: I have seen it in the past. I didn't rewatch it for this purpose. I can't remember anything about it either, to be honest. Okay. Did you like it?
1: Um, Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, to be honest, most Pixar films are quite likeable. And in fact, I feel very much the same as this, as I feel about Toy Story. It's really good. It just doesn't have enough women in it. We could almost leave it at that. It opens with a jazz tune, which means it automatically loses half a star, in my opinion.
0: But it's got really cool graphics on the jazz tune.
1: It's got old-style
0: Disney graphics, is not it? It's not classic
1: Disney values. It's different. uh, (laughs) So it starts off with a kid sleeping and a monster like coming out of the cupboard, screaming into his face. It turns out it's actually a simulation that this monster has failed. And a big spider monster, which is actually quite scary. I think he is the the grossest thing of all of it. Turns out he's training them. He runs a company and we sort of get revealed to us slowly that this is an alternate universe that accesses our universe through children's wardrobe doors. And that their entire universe is powered by children's screams. Then we meet Sully, who I'm going to say is way too fluffy to actually be scary. His isn't fur he? is amazing. If you saw him coming out of your
0: cupboard, you would just go and rub yourself your face on his fur, wouldn't you? Well, that's you wouldn't... kind of the principle as you might be getting to in that everyone's monster is different. Whereas, yeah, some people. What if you're really allergic to fur? You're not going to go and want to rub yourself on him?
2: No, probably and not. He does just do a good shout. Freaked out by t- big hairy thing coming at yeah. you.
0: I feel feel like we've learned too much about Jen's life with that revelation. (laughs) So he's played
1: by John Goodman. Um, He's he's sort of partnered with a... Well, I don't know what to say, really. It's like Mobile Eyeball, really, who's played by Billy Crystal. Mike
0: Wazowski!
1: Yeah, he's only got the one eye, but yeah, he does seem to have depth perception, which is handy throughout this. And he's like his partner, and they work in a factory. Uh, The country is powered by screams. And I was sitting there when I was watching it, and I was thinking, do you know what? If it was actually possible... To generate enough power to like run an entire country based on screams, then I wouldn't actually be half as scared about Brexit as I am right now.
0: We literally. The energy crisis is sorted, guys. Exactly, at the
1: very least. If everyone could just say what they feel about Brexit into this sky, um, we, would be, we would be lighting up at least the north of England uh, with the screams. I did kind of. I can't really understand. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm like about all like weird plots. I didn't really understand how this universe exists, where they first discovered that children's screams would be would be powerful, et cetera, et cetera. And then I decided that I wouldn't I wouldn't care about that sort of thing, which is actually perhaps an indication of how much I was enjoying watching it. I decided just to not fixate on weird plot points, but actually just get on with it. What? Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> Sully is a really likeable character. It's um, He's
0: basically Dan from Roseanne. He is, you know what,
1: he reminds me of. He reminds me of, if you work in enough pubs, eventually you'll meet like that certain sort of pub landlord who's, who tends to say stuff like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That's, that's <laughs> what Sully would be. He would be that sort of pub landlord. Mm-hmm. One of my, my prime problems with this is that it, one of the female characters you then meet, which is Mike's girlfriend, who is a kind of a Medusa type creature. Um, she talks almost entirely in baby speak and she is one of the only female characters in it.
0: She is played by Jennifer Tilly, who I believe speaks entirely in baby speak all, all the time. That's what she's yeah. got, isn't it? I suppose. So maybe Celia is just like, that is just Jennifer Tilly's voice. But no, she is like, coochie bear and choochie poochie. Yeah. And and it's really bun irritating.
1: Bun. And she is literally the primary female character, which is annoying. Well, I say that apart from the, the little girl in it who is actually played by uh, a little girl um, called... Mary Gibbs, Mary Gibbs, and she is a, a stroke of genius. But what we'll, we'll get onto that. Of course, there's a bad guy, and in a scene that in a scene that is an, a wonderful pastiche of Top Gun, they are in the uh, changing rooms with the bad guy with Steve Buscemi, who's essentially playing Iron Ma- Iceman in this.
0: It's Randall. Yeah. Randall is Iceman.
1: That's a lot of fun. Anyway, basically, what happens is there's a bit of a balls up, and a, everyone is really scared of children in this universe. And what happens is. In fact, a child makes it into this universe. She's three years old. She is called, her name is apparently Mary, but she is called Boo because she can't communicate. And her speaking is just a stream of consciousness that they put on a three year old, an actual, I think, two or three year old. I followed her around and it's really brilliant because some words you can sort of make out what she's saying. Kitty, she says Kitty.
0: She's she calls Sully Kitty.
1: The other female character is a character called Ross, who does actually turn out to be slightly more important than at the start. But you initially see her reading a gossip mag. So, like I say, I'm not really into the portrayal of women in this. And they are pretty much the only two women in it. So.
0: Hello, Wazowski. you yeah. <laughs> the best.
1: Well, what can I say, really? There are, there's a bit of a panic that kids aren't as scared of things as they used to be. And um, they're trying to get more screams. Uh then at some point they realise that actually the that Boo's laughter is actually more powerful than screaming. So I think we can all guess where this is this is going to
0: end. It ends in a magnificent door chase that goes back like yeah, to the old school sort of Disney mm. graphics in a way where you're chasing through all these doors and they're climbing in and out of different oh, remember like, universes. And John Ratzenberg appears as a yeti. Yeah.
1: There's a couple of <laughs> bits I really like. I like the idea that, that, that they created the mythology that... All of the monsters that actually allegedly exist in our world have been monsters that have been exiled exiled from their world, like the Loch Ness Monster and and the The Abominable Snowman, which is a rather rather great it's also funny I have to say there are some really funny lines and Billy Crystal does deliver some brilliant lines including the plan where they have where he decides that they're going to tunnel out of the city um, (laughs) in order to take the girl with them and he says using only spoons
0: (laughs) will tunnel out of the
1: city and it's ridiculously funny he
0: makes it feel improvised and obviously it won't have been it'll have been very carefully scripted but the bit where they think they're going to get caught and they notice that they've got a boo and he just goes put that thing back where it came from and everyone stops and they're looking at him and he just goes we're doing a musical bum 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 put that thing back where it came from." also healthy and just does a little musical love it so, oh yeah it's got
1: some bits that are actually a bit ET when the child detection agency comes in so it's got some nice nods to other films which is lovely the thing that is the the plot, I suppose, the bit that's most preposterous about the plot is that they cannot hold on to this little girl. And she has to almost like a magical property to appear and disappear and pop up in places. And actually, I have to say, that's kind of what looking after a toddler's like. So I, I like that, that even though it's ridiculous, you do do that thing where you look up and they're doing something and you look down the baby. Right? And then you look up again and they're climbing over the baby gate. And <laughs> you're like, how the fuck did they get there? Yeah, the door chase is brilliant. There's a lovely, also a lovely pastiche when the when the kid first appears in the restaurant and it goes loose in the restaurant and they do a great pastiche of local news um, or <laughs> eyewitness reports in when they're interviewing people about what they saw and they're like, oh my God, she was shooting lasers <laughs> out of the her
0: eyes. eyes. <laughs> amazing.
1: There are some bits that I really loved. I don't have any problems with this film apart from the fact there aren't enough women in it and the women that there are are
0: shit. And also one of the women I'd say the best representation of a woman outside of Boo who's played by an actual baby is Roz Hello Wazowski (laughs) and she's actually voiced by a man so you know one of the best female characters is played by a fella well done Disney. Other than that and I know it's Dunleavy Does Disney not Noon and Gushy's about one of her favourite films but I fucking love it. Dunleavy what score are you giving it? I am going to give it four it's got James
1: Coburn in it Anyway, sorry. I know, it's got no women in it. Oh, that's true. Sorry, mm. I forgot where I was. Four what? I'm going to give it four of whatever I gave uh, Toy Story for making exactly the same mistake.
0: Oh, okay. Four Toy Stories out
1: of... Four Toy Stories out of five.
4: Okay.
2: That's all from us on this week's episode of the Standard Issue Podzine. We will be back next week, as ever, But next week is, indeed, Gigcast Week, where you can hear Lucy Mangan, Connie Huck, Shazia Mirza and Rachel Paris having a bit of a natter with The Boss, Sarah Millican and Al Mick. And that was recorded at the Leicester Square Theatre back in April. We're not going to be at the Leicester Square Theatre for a couple of months now. We don't have a gig there until September, but what we do have is gigs all over the flipping shop. So next week's going to be a bit busy because we are at the Waterside Theatre in Sale where we will be joined by Jenny McAlpine and Shirley Houston and Sean Gibson and the boss Sarah Milliken, And they'll be chatting about all sorts of things as ever. That's on Tuesday next week, so do hurry up and get your tickets. Also next week, we will be in Harwich at the Harwich Festival we will be at the very beautiful venue, the Electric Palace, which is nice. And that is the following Saturday. So hurry up and get your tickets for that as well. In the meantime, you can listen out for Sunday Chops or revisit some of those if you fancy. And you can also listen out for one of our Seven Wonders playlists coming at your ears shortly. Please remember that if you like us and you like what we do, to rate and review us. It's really helpful. It helps people find out about us, which is nice. We like that. And five stars, yeah? Seems fair to me. I'm going to leave you to it now. All that remains for me to say is, as ever, stay frosty.
5: and issue for all women